0: Why have you chosen me? What would you have me do for you? I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord! Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me! Oh, hear me! all pay heed the lord the lord jehovah has given unto you these 15, 10, Ten commandments for all to obey <laughs> hey how many have seen that movie how many like mel brooks how many know about the old testament how many know how the Old Testament is different from the New Testament? You know, if you have a Bible, hold it up. Because, uh, you know, a lot, again, if you're not used to Bible study, this is this is a big revelation for for you, and uh, we're happy to help get you interested in the Bible a little bit. But if you, you know, if you hold up your Bible, about the first three quarters is Old Testament, and it primarily deals with God's relationship with the nation of Israel, and then Jesus shows up in Matthew one one. That's the genealogy of Jesus. And that's the last 20 or 25% of your Bible. And that begins the New Testament. And the New Testament primarily deals with God's relationship as a result of Jesus having come into the world. We no longer have to go through the nation of Israel to know God. We can know uh, God because of what Christ has done uh, for us. But when you come to the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, you begin to find uh, some subtle and not so subtle differences. You know, in the Old Testament, it's primarily you come through the nation Israel. In the New Testament, You're primarily dealing with the church. And in the Old Testament, there are some particular things that that are difficult, especially when it comes to uh, justice. You know, you you tend to think of God as a God of harsh and severe justice. Back in the days of the Great Depression, speaking of depression, uh, there was a mayor in New York. He was a little Italian guy named Fiorello LaGuardia. They got an airport named after him up there. If you have to fly out of New York, it's the smallest of the three airports. But he, he used to, in order to stay in touch with the people of New York, he would sometimes become the judge or the magistrate in city court at night. And there was a time during the Depression when a man was brought on charges in front of Fiorello LaGuardia on theft. He had apparently stolen money to buy bread for his starving children. LaGuardia was faced with a dilemma, and in the verdict, he said, you know, the law is the law, and it must be observed, and you are now going to be fined $10, which in the days of the Depression was an enormous amount of money uh, because of uh, the the breaking of the law. That seemed a little harsh. And when you get to the Old Testament, there are passages in which God seems a little harsh. And the question that I want to deal with today is, uh, is the question, can you trust God to be a just God? You know, is God uh, able to be trusted, especially in those situations where uh, his justice is most prevalent? And some people have fallen away or never come to faith in God because of this very question. A guy by the name of Richard Dawkins, who's a brilliant man, also an atheist, he writes this. He writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Again, because he's not a believer in God, he takes it all as fiction. He's jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. He is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomistic,istic, capriciously malevolent bully. <sighs> I made it. <clears throat> I had to practice that one. But because of his observations about this part of God that he cannot get his arms around, he says, Hey, I'm not buying in to that. And there are a lot of believers in Christ who struggle with a similar question. So in our series of what is God like we're wrestling with the question, is the God of the Old Testament uh, different than the God of the New Testament? Because you come to the New Testament, you have a lot of uh, kind, patient, gentle Jesus, meek and mild kind of verses. And so how do you reconcile those two seemingly opposite approaches to what God is like? And interestingly, when I started to study this, I was amazed that when I looked at the verses in context, there were just a whole bunch of verses in the Old Testament that really focused in on the love of God. For instance, in Exodus 34, which is right after uh, Mel Brooks got the law. Isn't that funny? God, we got this 15, forget it, 10 commandments. Actually, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And the justice of God is one of his primary attributes in the Old Testament. But God is also love. Exodus 34, just a few chapters later in Exodus, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. You know, I want a God like that. I want a God who's compassionate and slow to anger and uh, forgiving me, because I'm in rebellion and sin a lot of the time. I need a God who's very, very forgiving. If you study the, further in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, one of my favorite uh, Old Testament prophets, writes this. I love this verse. As surely I will live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says like this, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and what? God is not in heaven behind the clouds saying, hey, who can I send to hell here? Who can I abuse? Who can I judge? Rather, he takes pleasure in people who want to know him. In the book of Jonah, Jonah is told by God to go minister to the ninnies who lived in Nineveh. Remember Nineveh? Behold, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I'm not going to Nineveh. There are a bunch of ninnies up there. And so Jonah got in the ship, and then he was in the sea, and then he was in the stomach of the great fish. He gets spit up on the land, and the people of Nineveh, when they hear the message of Jonah, They repent. And it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned or repented from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So there are verses of forgiveness and compassion and love and repentance. This is one of my favorites. Psalm 30, verse 5. For anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts how long? A lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but read this with me. But rejoicing comes when... In the morning isn't that great in the old testament you have verses that talk about god's love and in the new testament you have just as many verses that talk about god's justice and god's wrath and god's punishment in fact if i were to put these verses up without references you would have thought they were not in the new testament some of you and again you find throughout the new testament there are times when it talks about this this attribute of god god's winnowing fork is in his hand doesn't that sound like a prophet And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I've got my Sunday drag racing voice there. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. That's a a harsh verse. Also in the book of Luke. This is Jesus speaking. This is our gentle Jesus full of love and compassion. This is what he says. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him. Who, after the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Wow, Jesus said that. Yeah, Jesus said that. I actually had uh, more than ten pages of verses, Old and New Testament verses. Old Testament that talked about compassion and love. And New Testament that talked about justice and fear. In the book of John, you, you know the famous verse in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. Did you see the commercial you know, the Tebow game. How many watched Tebow last night? How many were rooting for Tim Tebow? How many were sinful and rooted for the Patriots? There is judgment and destruction for you. <laughs> I love the Saturday Night Live skit. I think it said Tom Brady was the nephew of Satan, didn't it? Say it, something like that. <laughs> That's not for public knowledge. But here's in John 3, right after, For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. That's the gospel. But look at John three thirty 20 verses later, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. We like that. But whoever rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. Ah! You know, that's a scary verse. In the book of Acts, the apostle uh, Paul says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So you do have in the New Testament verses that deal with justice and the anger of God. Philippians 3. Philippians, you know what the key word in Philippians is? The word is joy. Joy, joy, joy. Happy, happy, happy. Joy, joy, joy. It's written 13 times in four chapters. Joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. It's the Tebow verse. I can do all things through Christ and that strengthens me. It's the Philippians verses. Look what Philippians 3 says in verse 18. For... As I have often told you before, and say now again even with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is what? Destruction. That's a hard verse. So what, one thing I would say is, you know, if you're going to study this idea and try to get your arms around the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, context is important. You've got to really get that maybe a Richard Dawkins didn't really read the Old Testament in terms of the compassion verses nor did he read the new testament in terms of the love and forgiveness uh, verses because there are many 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 again i had pages and pages of them come up so how do we wrestle with this idea can we trust god to be a just god is god uh, really a god of love or is he God? is he really a god of wrath and how do you try to put the two things together in harmony there are some principles that i'd like to share with you the first is that Hey, we'll, we'll step back and get the big picture. There are some difficult passages in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you three ideas. But one of the passages that people who get all hung up about this, and I understand it, but they complain about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, if you remember the story from Genesis 19, uh, Abraham, the father of all the Jews, had a nephew, Lot. And when he gave Lot the freedom to live anywhere, he chose Sodom. And Sodom was known for all sorts of evil and perversion. And so God found it necessary to destroy Sodom. Abraham, being a good Hebrew, decided he would negotiate with God. And and God said, I'm going to destroy the city. And Abraham said, well, God, let me ask you a question. If you find 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you withhold your judgment? And God says, yes, I'll withhold my judgment for 50 people. Abraham says, what about 40? it's like one of my grandchildren we withhold judgment for forty and god says okay i'll withhold judgment for forty abraham says what about twenty five was, "If i got a deal for you god and he gets them from twenty five to twenty. Finally, gets them down to ten and god says okay i won't destroy sodom if there are ten righteous people there again sodom is an ancient city it had been around for hundreds of years they had access to the same information that abraham and his followers had and instead of taking that track they took another track And there were not ten righteous people in the whole city. And so God destroys the entire city of Sodom. It's a difficult passage. But it's not without context and meaning. And anybody who wanted to could have escaped with Lot and his family. Most chose not to. You also have in the Old Testament the stories of the Canaanites. Say Canaanites. There's a particular group of Canaanites who are set out for destruction called the Amalekites. Say the Amalekites the Amalekites were the descendants of Amalek and and the Amalekites were a part of the big group the, the the big umbrella are the Canaanite tribes and then underneath are the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Mosquito Bites and the Electricites and the Stalactites and the Stalagmites there are about seven of these tribes and when Israel is entering the promised land they are told by God to destroy these groups of people now God for, for one, has waited 400 years for the Canaanites to come to faith. And in 400 years, instead of come to faith in the God of heaven, they have begun to practice every sort of debauchery and immorality and evil imaginable. They worshiped Baal. They worshiped the Astarts, which involved a lot of sexual perversion. They were involved in bestiality. They were involved in incest and, and promiscuity beyond measure. But they also practiced worship of Molech, M-O-L-E-K. Molech was a god who held his arms out like this, and in the statues of Molech that we find, there are like a fireplace built into the belly of Molech, and they would build a fire with iron arms coming out of the stone statue that would get red hot, molten hot, and they would literally take tiny infants, and they put them in the arms of Molech. The Old Testament refers to it as children passing through the fire. And they did that in the name of a religious practice. And so God comes along after 400 years of this. The amazing thing to me is not that they're judged, it's that it's not more quickly than this at times. But there are times when whole groups of people are, are done away with. Now, at that time when the Jews conquered the Canaanites, the people were given warnings. You know, there's a whole chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 20, which says, when you go to war, here's how you ought to do it. Now, Again, there's another question whether we as the church ought to go to war like Israel did. That's another whole theological discussion. But when Israel was going to war, one thing they had to do was warn the people they were going to conquer. And there was a time for the women and the children and the innocents to get away, and maybe they did. We're not told that. But the other thing is that uh, there's a quote I want to read you about what, what really happened in the Canaanite situation. It says this, When God makes it very clear sometimes that things deteriorate so far as a culture of people reaches a point of no return the remedy is like trying to unscramble an egg there is just no way back things have gone too far he illustrates that with the story of the genesis flood at the genesis flood god tried to unscramble the egg and left eight souls behind and things got worse he says this a good surgeon does not amputate a leg if someone has a stubbed toe on the other hand a good surgeon will amputate the leg if the infection is so massive that the patient would die otherwise There's a fellow by the name of R.A. Torrey if this is a real interesting topic to you he writes a book called difficulties in the Bible he's an old theologian from the early part of the nineteen hundreds but he's really well written and he says this it is appalling that any people should be utterly put to the sword but it is even more appalling that a society of people should have become so corrupt and debased That such treatment is deemed necessary in in the interest of humanity. The Canaanites were a moral cancer threatening the very life of the whole human race. The cancer had to be removed in order to save the body, just as a surgeon inflicts pain in order to remove a malignant growth in the body. You see, God told the people of Israel, get rid of these people. Now, the big reason and the underlying reason for all that was this. God did not want the Jewish people intermarrying with the Canaanites. The reason is that God promised that Jesus was going to come and he was going to be Jewish. He had to be a direct descendant of Abraham and a direct descendant of David. The very first verse of, of, of the book of, of, of Matthew, the first verse of the New Testament says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the problem with the Jewish people is when they started to intermarry, whenever that happened, it wasn't a racial thing because the Canaanites were of the same race as the Jews, but it was a spiritual corruption that took place. Ninety times out of a hundred, if somebody who is a believer marries an unbeliever, the unbeliever has an impact on the believer in a negative way. This has been true in my own family. I've got a wonderful sister, and she'd been married a few times. But early in her life, she married a guy who was really anti-Christian. And her attitude was, if I don't marry him, he'll never come to Jesus. We lovingly said, if you, know, if, if you just look at the Scripture, the Scripture says you're not supposed to marry him. In the Old Testament, it was true the Jews were not into Mary because of intermingling faith and non-faith. In the New Testament 2 and 1 Corinthians 6, we're told, do not become unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay? And so, again, young people, you're not even allowed to date unbelievers. Don't even think about it. Just don't even go there. But when you become unequally yoked, more often than not, the unbeliever wins out. And so God had to protect the Jewish people from themselves. And he said, hey, we just need to get rid of the Canaanites. After 400 years, they had not come to faith, and consequently, they're going to be wiped out. Now, is, that, is that hard to deal with? Yes. But it is an idea that is in Scripture. There's another passage that bothers people. It has to do with the Ninevites. And I mentioned them in the, in the passage where I talked about Jonah. But the Ninevites were not only Ninnies. The Ninevites were mean. You know, the the Ninevites were the worst people we know of in antiquity. They make Al-Qaeda look like a Sunday school class. When the Ninevites conquered a, a group of people, they took the women and children for slaves, and then they took the men and they skinned the men. And they hung the men's skins all around the wall of their ancient city of Nineveh. It was a large city. The wall was so wide that supposedly seven or eight chariots could ride along the top of the wall. They took the heads of the men and the heads of the women who wouldn't cooperate, and they would cut them off and impale them on stakes. And they were like light posts around the streets of Nineveh. So if you look up Google Nineveh sometime and the kings of Nineveh and and see what they did in antiquity, we have great records of these people. And yet when God shows up through the prophet Jonah and says, you're going to be judged, the people of Nineveh repented, and God withheld his Judgment. So God is not looking to destroy people. God's looking to have a relationship with people. We do know, unfortunately, that Nineveh did not go on in their faith. Because after the book of Jonah, how do you spell Jonah? Jonah, J-O-N-A-H. If you take the N-A-H, it's the first three letters of another prophet. Nahum, N-A-H-U-M. And Nahum also writes to the Ninevites about a 100 years after Jonah. And Nahum apparently has... Perceive that the Ninevites have not continued in their faithfulness to God. And so the prophet Nahum says God will destroy Nineveh with a flood. And we know from history that the city of Nineveh was built on the Euphrates River and at one point the river flooded away part of the wall of Nineveh and the Babylonians marched right in and killed all the Ninevites. But they did have a time when they repented and God was happy to forgive them. So those are three groups of people in the Old Testament that are disturbing their answers to them and I'd encourage you to dig that out if that's something that really is something of interest to you there are also some principles that I want to share with you these are some guidelines and some some principles when you when you come to this question God in the Old Testament is vengeful no we can trust God to be a just God the first point is that these Old Testament practices are more often than not boundaries to protect an infant nation. You know, these first few books of the Bible where these things occur, Genesis and Numbers is where you find the story of the Amalekites. Uh, Jonah's a little bit later. But these stories are stories of the people of Israel. They've just come out of Egypt, and they are a baby nation. They don't have a land. They don't have, they barely have a language. Their Bible isn't finished yet. They don't have a tabernacle to worship in. And so God is treating them like an infant. Now, I'm old, I've got nine grandbabies, one on the way. You know, we're going from a National League team to an American League team. We're going to have our designated hitter show up in March. But we had three of them this week. My son, Maddie has three kids, and I affectionately call them the Wombats. You know what a Wombat is? They just don't stop. So when it comes to me, their impression to me is that sometimes I'm a little... Full of judgment and wrath. Stop now! And I love them dearly. And I want them to think of me as a kindly grandpa, but when they come to visit me, we have a lot of rules. We have to lock the cupboards because they'll drink the cleanser. They're just stupid children. We have to hide the remote because, you know, at the age of one, they know how to work the remote. They're brilliant children. It was cute. This week, Anna, Anna's four. And she said, Daddy, I, I want to have a grandma and a grandpa. And Maddie said, well, you do. She said, no, I don't. He said, well, Mari is your grandma, that's Gwen, and Pap is your grandpa. She said, oh. And so she called me on, their, on her dad's phone, and she said, Pap. I said, what, Anna? She said, could I call you Grandpa She can call me whatever she wants because she knows the bottom line. My attribute toward her is that I love her and she can do whatever she wants. But when they're in my house, they have a lot of rules. You see, they would get up at four in the morning if you let them. And so we put tape over the clock numbers. The last two numbers do not show. And we say, see that number? You may not step on the floor until the number goes to seven. And she called me in this week. She said, I can't see the number. I said, well, Annie, you got to sit up in bed. I don't want to sit up. Women. You know? I raised four sons. They were easy. Sons are a piece of cake. You just feed them and beat them, right? You try feeding. If that doesn't work, you go to beating. If that doesn't work, you go back to feeding. By then, most guys, we're pretty simple creatures. I've got six granddaughters. The drama. The drama. I don't want to sit up. What do we do with that? Annie, you gotta sit up if you're gonna see the number seven and don't get up until the number turns seven. So when they come to my house, I've got a lot of rules for them. You may not cross the street unless you're holding an adult's hand. That's a rule. See, that's what God had to do for Israel. He had to hold their hands to get them from Egypt into the promised land. So they had a lot of rules. You may not play with the stove. You may not cook the dog. When they get older, the rules are different and less. When Zach's children come, you know, Jeremiah is eight, and I don't have to worry about holding his hand across the street. In fact, if I try to hold his hand, it's like, what are you, nuts? I got this. you know. And so it's just different as they get older. Now, I spend afternoons with adolescent males. Baseball starts this week. Pray for us. And and again, they think I'm the wrath of God. You know, I love them to death, but you have a lot of different rules for adolescent males than you do for a two-year-old. You don't have to lock the cupboards, you know, but you do have to say, look, don't burn donuts in the parking lot at the practice field. What would go through a child's head? You know, we had a kid, he he was banned from, from the practice facility by the city and I said help me understand what goes through your head you're driving down the road there's nothing going on at the ballpark what would go f- into your head that would make you say I think I'm gonna pull into the parking lot and burn donuts oh, I don't know so you know there's a different way of relating to teenagers and then there's a different way to relating to college students and, and you know with my own kids now they're in their 30s almost all of them we have no rules we're just in a relational situation But that's how it was with Israel. They had to have a lot of rules. Second, and and not everybody believes this. This is is me, but I think there's a difference between Israel and the church. I think that the nation Israel is not the church. And so there are some specific differences for Israel in the Old Testament that are not true for the church in in the New Testament. You know, I think that... uh, in the old testament god's dealing with a nation in the new testament god's dealing with individuals doesn't matter if you're jewish or polish or italian or spanish or french god deals with you as an individual you know i think in the old testament god had some promises for israel that are different than his promises for the church and so that explains why sometimes there are differences in the in the way god appears in the old testament there was a theocracy God was ruling through that nation. I don't see that in the New Testament. We are not a theocracy. Some people say, well, we're a Christian nation. Well, like we are, I believe, a nation formed under Christian principles. But we're not to be a theocracy. We're not formed that way. We don't have a national temple. You know, we don't have a sacrificial system. We don't have to eat kosher foods. All of that was set aside for Israel. There are some similarities. We're still the people of God. But I think that's a part of the answer to this question. And then lastly, there are different aspects of God's character which are not contradictory. You know, again, if you want to Google attributes of God, you'll find 20 things. God is eternal. God is holy. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Then you'll also find that God is just. God is perfect. God is loving. God is compassionate. And just because you see one slice of God in one passage doesn't negate the other. And it's okay for God to be holy and loving at the same time, but you usually only see one slice of it or the other. Go back to my first story. During the Great Depression, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia used to hang out at night court once every month and serve as the magistrate. And there was brought before him a man who had been convicted or accused or charged of stealing money to buy food for his starving children. And as he stood before the magistrate, LaGuardia said, You are guilty as charged, and the law is the law, and you must be punished. And you will now be fined $10. That's the first part of the story. That's the justice part. But there's a great end of the story. He said, Now, he said, Everyone sitting in this courtroom, I'm citing you for living in a city where a man has to steal money to buy food for his children. And I'm going to fine you each. 50 cents and they passed the hat around and gave fifty dollars to the amazed man you see at the same time justice was served and love was demonstrated and that's the great thing about our faith you know when it comes to our faith God is just but God is also loving and we can trust God to be a just God because he's both in his justice he says hey everybody Uh, is sinful and everybody deserves to be punished. You know, not only do the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Ninevites need to be punished, I should be punished because of my sinfulness. You know, in our series this last summer on the Sermon on the Mount, we said, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And anything about us that is not perfect is sin. Whether it's in my head or committed outwardly, you know, it's it's, it's all the same to God. It's imperfect. And God says, if you sin, you must die. Romans says, the wages of sin is death. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the punishment of God. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. In the book of Isaiah, we see that God is just, but he's also loving. In Isaiah 53, it says, all us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Watch. Here's the good news. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on who? Jesus. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Because Jesus comes and he goes to the cross for you and for me. And he endures and bears the entire wrath of God for all the sins of the world. When Jesus was on the cross, he spent six hours there. And the last three hours, the sun grew dark because during those three hours, Jesus was suffering from the wrath of God from the beginning of time until the end of time. And all of the sin and all of the punishment and all of the stuff that I deserve, Jesus took on his own shoulders there during those three hours on the cross. So much so that when he was done He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the lights come back on and he says, it is finished. I have paid in full the debt that every one of us owes to God. So again, is the wrath of God a part of the equation? Yes. But I deserve punishment just as much as the Sodomites and the Amalekites and the Ninevites because I'm sinful. What was it Brian said about Sherry? She's not certified no she's certifiable what is it she said about you weren't qualified none of us are qualified to stand before god one of the things i love about tba church is that we get that you know none of us are qualified to stand before god it's only because of what jesus does for us when we accept his gift of forgiveness and say yep i'm gonna i'm gonna ask jesus into my life to be my savior because he died for me and he suffered the wrath of god so i don't have to That we have forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. So while the band is coming, particularly the trio, I'd like you to bow your heads with me. And I'd like you to remember that you can trust God to be a just God. Father, we don't have all the answers to all the questions. But we have enough to make good decisions And I pray you'd give us wisdom and insight as to how in the Old Testament you can seem one way and that same way in the New Testament. And yet with all of the questions we have, the amazing question is why would you take your wrath and your judgment and your punishment and your justice, why would you take all that and and lay it on your son? And the answer is because you loved us and you wanted to have a love relationship with us based on our forgiveness and based upon who we become in Jesus. If you've never received that gift, if you've never escaped God's wrath and the punishment you deserve for your sinfulness, it's simply a matter of by facing Jesus, I acknowledge that you died for me. And I ask you to come into my life and forgive me and help me to be the person you want me to be. Father, thank you. For the blood of Christ.